Let's bow our heads. Kind Father in heaven, we are forever grateful that you are the great initiator, that you have reached out and provided all that we need. As we review the life of one of your men, may we be aware of how you are speaking into our own hearts and minds. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So how did faith define the life of Moses? When we go to find the story of Moses, there are several places that we can look. The details of his life start to unfold in Exodus chapter 2 and continue on throughout Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Summaries of the faith journey, however, are also found in Stephen's speech before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 7 and, of course, in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 22 to 29. This repetition confirms the importance of the life of Moses in God's plan of salvation. He is seen as a pivotal man. In spite of his shortcomings, Moses gave testimony to the value and the importance of a fully committed relationship with God. Let's review the setting of his birth. Thank you, Linda, for doing that for us this morning. The Israelites have been multiplying and prospering in the land of Goshen since Joseph settled them there. Their success has caused the envy and more than just a little bit of concern to be raised among the Egyptians. Satan stirred up that racial tension. A pharaoh that did not want to honor the memory of Joseph and how he had saved Egypt during the famine decided that it was time to act on those racial fears, and he subjugated the Israelites into slavery. This persisted for several generations. Satan's knowledge that a deliverer must come was the impetus behind a different pharaoh's decree to kill all the baby boys. Into this hostile setting, Amram and Jochebed decided to have another child. That decision represented an act of faith. The risk for heartache was multiplied when that good-looking little baby turned out to be a boy. That his life was preserved for three months in the home, then in the little ark on the River Nile, and then as the son of the princess is evidence for continued faith in that home. Hiding an infant for three months was no small challenge. Babies cry at all hours of day and night. The challenge of hiding a baby would be made even more difficult than you might expect. After all, this was probably a fairly simple dwelling. I don't expect that there were multiple rooms where you could hide him. The story is also told that in order to expose those male infants, that the Egyptian mothers would take their babies with them and walk into a Hebrew house, prick the feet of their own babies to get them to cry, hoping that the hidden baby might cry either in fright or sympathy and be exposed to certain death. The Bible doesn't tell us how long Jochebed had to teach and train Moses, but Ellen White indicates that it was for 12 years. 
I expect that the miraculous protection that God had provided for him as an infant was frequently recounted. From his later choices, it is clear that God used his parents to instill in him a love for God and for his own people. His parents, however, had a real challenge. They had to balance their educational focus in such a way that Moses would love and respect them and their God, as well as the princess who had adopted him. She is the one God used to save Moses, support him, and even name him. The second phase of Moses' education takes place in the palace. Acts 7.22 tells us that he was educated by the best minds of Egypt, that he became powerful in speech and action. But it wasn't enough just to be another child in the royal household. The princess had high ambitions for him. He was groomed to become the next pharaoh. As a pharaoh, he must be the head of that pagan religion. Every effort was made to educate him for this aspect of his future responsibilities. Moses' intellect, charm, and good looks allowed him to resist the false teachings and indoctrination without provoking a hostile response from the court of Pharaoh. As he argued for worshiping the God of Israel, he was a witness to the entire court. When Moses reached 40, he decided to go visit his relatives. How he reacted to what he saw revealed his connection with the Israelites. How he dealt with it revealed his misunderstanding of how God meant for him to be a factor in the deliverance of the children of Israel. Moses came to the defense of an abused Israelite and ended up killing the abusive Egyptian. Acts 7.25 says that he assumed that the Israelites would realize that God had sent him as their rescuer. The next day, when he was in the neighborhood once again, he saw an Israelite beating up another Israelite. When Moses questioned their motives, the abuser rejected Moses and questioned his authority to rule over them. Moses had been educated and trained to be a leader of a nation and the general of an army. All he needed was for the children of Israel to catch his vision and rally behind him. They were more numerous than the Egyptians, but he underestimated the degrading impact of generations of slavery. The Israelites failed to recognize the opportunity that Moses' skills and training provided. Now at this point in the story, the three different accounts in the Bible give a slightly different perspective. In Exodus 2.14, we're told that Moses was afraid once he realized his murder was no secret and that Pharaoh found out about the death of the Egyptian and in his anger tried to kill Moses, so Moses fled. Acts 7.28 indicates that Moses fled once he realized that his murder of the Egyptian was no longer a secret. And Hebrews 11.27 tells us that it was an act of faith for Moses to leave Egypt and that he did not fear the king's anger. His focus was on the one who is invisible. 
When I see this progression, it becomes clear to me that our perspective must be tempered by God's perspective. It is easy to see fear as a motivating factor for fleeing from Egypt. It is also likely that Moses realized the futility of trying to rescue a people who did not trust him. If they were like the Israelite in the wrong, they had already rejected him as a leader in the current circumstances. If this is so, then it is an exercise of faith to leave Egypt and trust God to find another man or another way to accomplish the release from Egypt that the Israelites so desperately desired. We do know that the effect of these events resulted in Moses getting out of the royal palace and getting out of Egypt. His exit led to the start of the next phase of his education, an education as a shepherd and as a son-in-law of, of wise Reuel, or Jethro, a priest in Midian, an education that focused his attention on God's abilities more than Moses' skills. It was the second 40 years of preparation for the job God had in mind. God would call him to complete that job during the last 40 years of his life. So here's the question. Have you ever thought of waiting as a courageous act? There are certainly times in our lives when waiting is an act of faith. When we so desperately want a certain outcome and feel capable of executing the necessary steps to achieve our goal, but the Lord has not given us peace to proceed. It is an act of faith to wait upon the Lord's methods and timing to achieve what we would like to forcibly achieve in a short period. God's not in a rush. Forty years of tending sheep provided the opportunity for God to develop patience and to instill a deepening trust in Moses. It is clear from the rest of the story that Moses came out of Midian with a faith in God that had grown beyond what was present when he hastily left Egypt. It is most likely that Moses wrote Genesis during this time. Reviewing the hand of God from creation down through the generations to Joseph would have been a faith-building exercise all by itself. When I look at the calling of Moses, Joshua, Gideon, Samuel, Ezekiel, and Isaiah, I find that each of them had objections and deficiencies. Please note that this did not stop God from using them. God took the steps necessary to prepare them for their calling. God calls us out of ordinary circumstances for extraordinary tasks. We respond in humility and disbelief. God does not chide any of his leaders for questioning him. In a certain sense, their struggling with God's call begins to prepare them for the task. God is greater than their inadequacies, lack of experience, or talent. At the burning bush, Moses received his call, and was commissioned for the task that God had raised him up to accomplish. He is called to trust God to direct his words and his actions. 
He must represent God to Pharaoh, bring God's message of deliverance to the children of Israel, and be seen as the one God used to effect their deliverance. Following the burning bush, Moses goes to meet Aaron in the wilderness. Their meeting is coordinated by angels. Now, if you think about the problem set before them, during their slavery, many of the Israelites had lost their knowledge of God. Their taskmasters had made Sabbath observance almost impossible. They were not ready for God's deliverance, even though they thought they wanted it. There was a general unwillingness to leave Egypt. It was all they knew. And their lack of trust in God compounded the difficulty in Moses' job. Once Moses and Aaron reached Egypt, they had to confront the strongholds of Satan in two fronts. In the palace before the most powerful man in the world and among the downtrodden children of Israel. Moses' faith was tested not only by his interaction with Pharaoh, but also by the difficulty of dealing with these Israelites. The experience of the plagues was twofold. Number one, they exposed the real face of Satan's kingdom. And number two, they were an opportunity for God to reveal himself to his people to develop the faith required for their deliverance. One of the lessons of Moses' story is that redemption or rescue occurs on God's initiative. It does not occur because we have done anything to deserve being rescued. Our main qualification is need. Please note, the Israelites were delivered from Egypt and slavery before they ever received the law at Sinai. God's covenant with us is based on His ability to deliver not on any ability on our part. Praise God that he is not driven away by our rejection of him. He is faithful. So Moses and Aaron met with the elders of the children of Israel. They demonstrated the miraculous signs that God had given Moses and convinced the elders that the Lord had sent them. The elders were convinced that the time for their deliverance was near and that God had heard their cries. They responded to this great news with worship. What comes next? And how do we understand it? What do we need to understand what comes next? We need a reality check. Too often, we are oblivious to the unseen realities that surround us. Paul makes it clear in Ephesians 6.12 when he writes, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. The story of Job underscores the reality that when God withdraws his protective shield, the devil unleashes the destructive forces of nature to make Job's life miserable. The trial, flogging, and crucifixion of Jesus give evidence that Satan uses force in an effort to make God respond with force. You and I need to remember this part of reality if we're going to understand what took place between God as between Moses as God's representative and Pharaoh, the chief worshiper of Satan in Egypt. 
When thinking of this particular pharaoh, it is worth remembering that this man was most likely second in line to the throne when Moses fled from Egypt. So when Moses was giving witness to his belief in God in the palace, this man was also part of that conversation. He had already been exposed to a clear presentation of who God is through Moses. He had been rejecting the evidence presented for more than 40 years before he was confronted as, by Moses as God's representative, as recorded starting in Exodus chapter 5. Moses and Aaron's first meeting with Pharaoh resulted in increased hardship for the slaves. They had to get their own straw to make their quota of bricks. The people were dismayed and discouraged. Here's the point. God's presence did not then and does not now guarantee immediate victory. When God finally announced his presence and his blessing on his people, things got worse before they got better. The opposition of the enemy exposes our level of trust in God. In John 16:33, Jesus said, In this world you will have troubles. When troubles come, I typically ask, Where's God? Or, Where is God? Why am I so short-sighted that I don't see these hardships as fulfillment of God's word? We live in a world that is influenced and often controlled by Satan. I should not be surprised to experience significant difficulties when God is moving among people who worship him. When Moses and Aaron returned to speak to Pharaoh on God's behalf, an often overlooked object lesson is presented in Exodus chapter 7. I remember this simply as the rod becoming a snake that ate up the fake snakes of the palace sorcerers. There is much more being communicated here. This is, the, this is setting the stage for what will happen in the plagues. Note that Exodus 7.1 indicates that God will make Moses seem like God to Pharaoh. Moses is representing God in all of these interchanges. During Moses' life and Aaron's, he and Aaron's staff or rod were used as a communication device by God. At the burning bush, the rod can be seen as representing Moses' personal sense of security. Once he casts it on the ground, it becomes a sign of God's power. When Moses and Aaron come before Pharaoh, the staff fills another role. Taken in the context of the plague, it can be seen to represent all of creation. When it is in the hand of Aaron, who is speaking and acting under the direction of Moses, it portrays creation under God's control. When it is thrown down before Pharaoh, it represents what will happen to those living in a world marred by sin when the forces of nature are released from God's control. Released from Aaron's hand, sorry, I can't make it a snake, but it became a hissing snake. It represented the destructive character of Satan. Now, the court magicians did appear to duplicate this. Their rods, aided by the power of Satan, appear to be similar snakes. Uh, 
However, this is only computer-aided graphics. This is an illusion. Satan does not have the power to instill life. The illusion is sufficient for Pharaoh to dismiss this display as Moses simply having better magic. But the lesson is there as Moses' snake eats up the illusions. This object, sets, this object lesson sets up the understanding that the plagues are the natural consequence of God withdrawing incrementally from his control of sin-damaged creation. The point from which he withdraws is determined by the sinful worship, the idolatry of creation by the Egyptians. Bit by bit, specific portions of sin-damaged creation are sequentially released to manifest the character of the deceiver. Satan had inspired worship that distracted all attention from the Creator. As a consequence of the persistent assertions of the Pharaoh and the Egyptians that they utterly rejected God, God withdrew his protection. They thought they could handle the natural world without God's protection. Instead of life as usual, death and chaos erupted. Satan loudly placed the blame for this death and destruction on God. Our insurance policies echo this understanding when they describe calamities in nature as acts of God. Christians for centuries have perpetuated a false picture whenever we parrot the devil's twisted representation of the character of God. We have been very comfortable with an angry, sin-destroying God. In the process, we have attributed to God our own approach to dealing with difficulties. We have created a God very unlike the Son, who came to express nothing but love and forgiveness toward us as he lived, died, and rose again. Moses appealed to Pharaoh to let the people come apart to worship God. God's purpose in liberating us is to grant us the freedom to worship him. We may misuse the freedom and reject him. He gives us that choice. It is his plan to so thoroughly redeem us that we may worship him with joy for eternity. One of the lessons of Exodus is this. When we do not sense God's presence, it does not mean that he is absent, just that he is working behind the scenes, or that his kingdom, built on love and freedom, must wait for the natural consequences of rebellion to come to full flower, for sin to self-destruct. If you are like me, and you do not believe that God will use the devil's tool of force to solve the sin problem, then the long wait for the exodus can be understood. It is that amount of time that it took for the Egyptians to thoroughly reject God and for sin to destroy their ability to hold Israel in slavery. The Egyptians made their rejection of God plain through their pagan worship. God's own character required that he reluctantly honor their rebellious choices. Rather than overwhelming them with total chaos, he gave them a metered, sequential experience of what the sin-damaged natural world would look like if God did not exercise his control. Removing his power, that removing his presence, 
to honor the reality of their choice meant that he began to withdraw his protection from the chaos of Satan's rule, the false god they had been worshiping for generations. As the angels holding back the winds of strife were instructed by God to release their grasp, the chaos of the plagues was manifest at points of false worship in Egyptian culture. Why was the ultimate loss the death of the firstborn? The firstborn was dedicated from birth to become the pagan priest in each family. Releasing the Egyptians to fully honor that commitment to Satan meant removing God's protection. This exposed them to Satan's unbridled desire to effect their destruction. Satan promptly misrepresented their deaths as caused by God. Their false worship destroyed their families. That painful loss finally brought Pharaoh and his people to release the children of Israel from the bondage of slavery. The dialogue between God and Moses throughout his life is priceless. Moses is open with God about his emotions. He shares his questions and his disappointments. He experiences amazing highs and crushing lows. He is used by God to represent God both to Pharaoh and to the Israelites. He bears frustration, but grows in faith. He learns how to delegate leadership to avoid burnout. He endures the jealousy of his older brother and sister while leading a bunch of complaining whiners. Ultimately, Moses was raised from the grave and was privileged to encourage Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. All of this took place because Moses responded to God's call. If he could have seen the end from the beginning, how God would equip him for this immense task and privilege, he would have been overwhelmed. Communing with God in the wilderness of Midian, he was drawn into a relationship of growing trust. What I expect from God in my life and in today's world must be based on how he dealt with Moses and the Israelites in the past. Here's our challenge today. Will you and I find our hiding place in a relationship with God as he has revealed himself in his son Jesus? If I am to grow in my relationship with God, I must trust in the promises he has already made to his people. I must learn to trust that he always has my ultimate good in mind. Will you, will I, heed his call on our lives? Unless God changes my nature, I cannot serve God. That is how diabolical the sin injury is in our lives. I have been miswired. My processor is corrupted. God will not use deceit, manipulation, coercion, peer pressure, or any other manifestation of force to win the battle for my mind. He will only effect the cure once I admit my need and give my consent. Then he lovingly restores the value he created you and me to express. What are the obstacles to going all in with Jesus?
For Moses, it was the rocky road from rags to riches and power back to humility and insecurity. What is it for you? Are you too young? Too old? Not well enough educated? Not financially secure? Too busy? Too distracted? Too well satisfied that real life is about having the best information and our church has it? Or too wounded by people who have a picture of an angry God and have spilt some of that venom on you? Ken Miedema wrote the song, Moses, dramatizing the experience at the burning bush, God's call and mission for Moses. Our choir sang it to us here in church last school year. That song continues to touch me deeply, and you can find several renditions of it on YouTube. To close, I would like to borrow some of his words. Here's the question. What do you hold in your hand today? To what or to whom are you bound? Are you willing to give it to God right now? Give it up. Let it go. Throw it down. Let's pray. Kind Father in heaven, we admit our sinfulness and our brokenness, our pride and our self-sufficiency. We praise you for your healing touch and welcome your spirit into our hearts. Humbled by your call, we bow in worship. We dedicate our lives to living out your praises and inviting all to your table. Amen.